Good morning. Welcome to uh, Church of the Redeemer. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. This Advent season, we are looking at the four angelic visits in the Gospels. First, to Zechariah. Today, to um, Joseph. Next week, the third visit to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then fourth, to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem. And each time the angels visit, they speak. Uh, to these people, and as they talk about the Messiah that is coming, they make a connection every time to David, who we've been looking at for a number of weeks all fall. The Messiah would be David's son, is basically what they're reminding the people. He would sit on David's throne. He would be born in David's city. And so the Messiah, or the Greek word is Christ, literally means it literally means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, There were three uh, offices of people that were anointed. There were the prophets who were anointed as God's mouthpieces, who spoke on behalf of God to the people. There were the priests who were anointed as the, the servants of God who served in the temple and made sacrifices and prayed on behalf of the people. And then there were the kings who were anointed. And the kings were anointed as... The, the rulers of God's people, and they acted as covenant mediators for God's people. And so the church has historically seen in Jesus, the Messiah, again, the anointed one, being the fulfillment of all three of those, prof, those offices. He is prophet, priest, and king. So that's, what we're, that's the, the Advent themes we're working through this year. Jesus as prophet, priest, king, and then Messiah. And each week we're going to take a look at one of these different offices. Today we're going to read the story of the angel's visit to Joseph, And from what the angel says, we're going to see how the coming of Jesus, the son of David, Messiah, how he would serve as a priest. In order to rescue us, he had to assume the role in the office of a priest. And so let's read together this morning from Matthew chapter 1, if you would. It's printed for you there in your worship folder in the insert. It's also on the screen behind me. And you can pick up a Bible if you'd like to. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Let's read. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ... Again, Messiah, anointed one, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Uh, this is God's word. These stories at the beginning of the Gospels never cease to amaze me and just the sense of the scope of the miraculous nature of them. But what I want us to see this morning in Joseph, in particular, I think we get a glimpse in what exactly the, the demands are that Christmas and the Christmas story puts on us. This story puts certain demands on us as God's people, certain, certain duties, certain requirements for us. And so we need to see what those demands are, and then we need to see how we meet those demands. And in order to meet them, here's what's got to happen, two things. First, you've got to see what your real need is. And we're going to see that in the name of the child being Jesus. You have to see what your real need is, and then you've got to see how Jesus meets that need as a priest. His name is Emmanuel. And so that's just what I want to do this morning. How does this passage teach us about the demands that Christmas puts on us? And how do we meet meet those demands? First, by seeing what our real need is. And then secondly, seeing how Jesus meets those needs as as a priest. So let me do this then. Uh, What do we learn about what the demands of Christmas are? How does Joseph's encounter with the angel here teach us what God really requires of us? Uh, In the final book of the series, the Chronicles of Narnia, in the final chapter of the final book, the final battle is fought at a place called Stable Hill. I don't know if you've ever read the books, but there's King Tyrion, who's one of the big you know, characters in this book at the very end. King Tyrion and his forces are driven back to the stable, which on the outside is this little 6 by 12 foot wooden structure on top of this hill. And they come up to this stable, and they go inside it. But once they step inside the stable, 
Uh, there is blue skies and green grass and meadows and groves of trees. And the kings and the queens of old are there. And it's this remarkable experience. And this surprises King Tyrion. And he says, it seems, this is his quote, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. To which, one of the characters adds, yes, it, its inside is bigger than its outside. And then C.S. Lewis puts the knockout punch in the mouth of Queen Lucy, who's there and who makes the statement. She says, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And I think this is C.S. Lewis's way of describing how strange our culture's approach to Christmas is. I have in mind something like this. I'm walking along in the mall in silent night or better joy to the world or some traditional Christmas hymn begins to play over the loudspeakers in the mall. This happens every Christmas and it's all I can do to start yelling in the middle of the mall, stop playing that. You don't believe any of it. And for our culture, what I mean, our culture, which is largely outside of Christianity, okay, in our city, 80% of the people do not have anything to do with church or anything practically to do with Christianity. Most of our culture is outside of Christianity, and for most of the culture, the story of baby Jesus is something quaint or sweet, and we make fun of it in movies like Ricky Bobby, who loves to pray to baby Jesus, or whatever it might be. It's this quaint, sweet story, you know, but ultimately not of great significance. So you can listen to Round Yon Virgin, Mother and Child, Holy Infant So Tender, and mild, and really not think about the implications of the words and just go about your business of doing Christmas shopping. But Christians can't do that, see? Because for Christians, the Christmas story is much more than background music for the really important stuff going on. I mean, when you put your faith in Jesus and you begin to see Christmas from within instead of from without, you realize that it is an event of such importance and magnitude that it demands that you live all of your life. All of your life in reference to it. I mean, the claim is just this. God was born. (laughs) God himself came into the world to save us. I mean, it's a truth claim of, of, of that magnitude cannot be reduced to background music. And so John Stott, who is a New Testament scholar and pastor and leader in the church, Uh, across the pond, he says, really, if you look at the Gospels, there are three responses to Jesus in the Gospels that are rational, and only three, these three. He says, first, you read and you'll see the first response people had to him was they were terrified of him and they ran away as fast as they could. He said that is a rational response. If he is indeed God come into the world, that is a rational response. The second response is, he says, there's this other group of people that when they saw him and when they heard him and when they got around him, they hated him and they wanted to kill him. Because they understood who he claimed to be. And they understood the implications of his teaching. And they hated it. And they wanted to kill him. So again, a rational response. And then the third, he says, if you look, there's a third category of people. And these people, when they saw him, when they met him, when they got around him, they did not run away terrified. They did not hate him and want to kill him. They bowed down and they worshipped him and they gave him everything they had. And all three of these are appropriate if you understand that the claim on your life that Jesus makes here is an ultimate claim. You can be terrified. I am at times. You can be angry. Again, I am at times. You can worship him, which I hope we do, but you can't yawn with, with indifference. You can't reduce it to background music. You can't be lukewarm in your response to him. That's not rational. It's not rational because this story claims God was born. You see, this is what Joseph's wrestling with here because he's got a big problem. I mean, a big problem. He's engaged. Betrothed is the word, right? That is, legally pledged to marry a girl named Mary, and then Mary turns up pregnant but not by him. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Trouble. And what's fascinating is if you read the different accounts of the Gospels, Luke's account of what happens at Christmas the, the whole thing kind of crescendos and ends up with angels on a hillside and singing, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill towards men, you know, and it's this big celebration. But in Matthew, Matthew is completely different. When, when Matthew tells the story of Christmas, there's no angelic choir singing. There's no celebrating. There's murder and danger and fleeing from pursuers. 
And that's, that's kind of the feel that Matthew's trying to go after in his gospel. And so here's Joseph, who's got a really big problem, and he inescapably has a part to play in what God is doing. That's what he's learning here. He inescapably has a part to play in all that is unfolding around him. Look at how the angel addresses him in verse 20. Joseph, what? Son of David. Do not fear. So why address him that way? Well, all of Matthew 1 to this very point has been crafted by Matthew to connect Jesus to David. You have verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Then you have this genealogy. The whole point of the genealogy is to show how Jesus has come from David's line. And so all of Matthew is trying to connect us to, uh, connect Jesus to David and the promise of the son of David, that which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and all that that son of David was going to come to do. And then here's Joseph, who's right in the middle of all of this, and in a really big fix, and the way the angel tries to get him to wrestle through the inescapable part he has to play in what God is doing, is he calls him Joseph, son of David. In other words, Joseph. God is remaking the world through a king he is going to bring And it's through your family, remember. You're of the line through which that king is going to come. Don't forget. You have something to do with this. You have an inescapable part to play in this. There's something bigger than you going on around you, and I think that's exactly what's true of us as well. That Christmas can't be the background music to our lives. There's a mission. We, too, have an inescapable part to play in what God is doing in the world in the Christmas story. And so we, like Joseph, have a big problem. And really it boils down to just this. Joseph, at the core, what Joseph needs and what we really need is courage. That's why the angel says to him there, look, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. I mean, why would Joseph be afraid? I mean, what does he have to lose? So let's be clear, okay? Let's just get it out on the table from the very beginning. Here's what Joseph, I think, has to, you know, that he really does have to fear. Here is what he could lose through the situation, and we could lose the same thing, and so we need to weigh the cost of this at the very beginning. First, he will probably lose his good name. I mean, in a shame on our culture like this, if he's to marry Mary, and she turns up pregnant, then his name is Mud, because here are his options. Either he got her pregnant, right? Which was forbidden outside of marriage, and punishable. Or... Somebody else got her pregnant, which would have made her unsuitable to marry. So either way, he's in trouble because it's not like he could say, you know, it's not like it was an option. He could just tell people the truth. Well, you know, it's God's baby. It isn't mine. Now now he's just insane. There is no way out of this. He's got nowhere to go. I mean, he's going to lose his good name through this. There's there's just no question about it. And Frederick, Frederick Buechner, who is an author that writes some really good things. He says, if, if you do not hear in the message of Christmas something that must strike some as blasphemy and others as sheer fantasy, the chances are you've not heard the message for what it is, Emmanuel. I mean, God with us. And Beekner's right. And increasingly in our culture, to believe that this story is true and to live out the implications of it means you will be looked at as being stupid or naive or strange and it takes courage to do that. But there's another thing that I think we see. And it's not only that he risks the loss of his good name, but really he risks the loss of his ability to control his life. He's going to lose control. And you see that. that comes out in the feature in the story where the angel tells Joseph what he has to name the child. You see that. The angel gives him instructions about what the child's name is to be. And that's a big deal in that culture because in that day and time, naming the child would have been a function of authority. So the person who named the child would have been the one that was seen as having authority over the child's life, that would be the one that would kind of make sure the child was cared for. It was a function the father reserved for himself. And yet, what the angel says is, Joseph, you're going to have a son with Mary, but it's not going to be your son, it's going to be God's son, and you're not even going to get to name him. So Joseph has to die to his dreams for his life. He has to die to his ability to control his life. I mean, look down at the bottom of the passage here, and you see in verse 25, and we see at the end it resolves with just this simple statement, and he called his name Jesus. I mean, Joseph submits. He, in essence, says, this is not the life I would have chosen for myself. But God, it's the one you've chosen for me, and I will obey you. God, I will live 
for your purposes and not for myself. That's what Joseph is doing. And that takes incredible courage. And so really there's demands, okay? And some of the demands you see here, and it really does call for courage. And so we've got to then ask, how do we get this courage? I mean, where does this kind of courage that we find in Joseph here come from? If Christmas is an event of such importance and significance that it demands our whole lives, every part of our lives be lived in reference to it, and that to do that we need courage, then where do we get this kind of courage? Where do you get courage to face the disdain and ridicule of others? Where do you get the courage to give up control of your life? And there are two things, I think, that Joseph comes to understand through what the angel tells him. And two things we need to see in the text. If we really are going to get this courage, we need to really come to see and understand these things, and they will give us courage too. And they're just these two things. I've already told you, but I'll do it again. First, we need to, we need to see that we face a very real threat. And the threat is not what we think it is. And then second, we need to see how Jesus, the God-man, has met that threat as our priest. Okay, so let's look at those two things, and then we're done. So, the threat. Now, if I was to ask you, what is the greatest threat to your marriage? How would you answer that question if you're married? Or if I was to ask it like this, another way of saying this, what is your greatest need? What's the thing you need God to do for you more than anything else? If you were to ask a Jew that question at the time of Jesus' birth, they would have told you very quickly, very clearly, that the greatest threat was their political enemies. So in this case, Rome. So when the, when the Jews dreamed about who Messiah would be, they imagined him to be a military king or hero who would fight for them and who would you know, defeat their political enemies and would set them up as the, the victors over their enemies. And so the Jews most wanted God to save them from Rome. Now, in the same way, I really believe if we were to honestly answer the question, what's your greatest need? Most of us, most of the time, would come up with some kind of circumstantial change. Well, you know, I really could use a job or I could really use a different job or, well, you know, I could use more money in the bank at the end of the month or I really would like different in-laws, please, God, or whatever. Right? So because the temptation is to think that the problem with my life is circumstantial, but it almost never is. As much as I wish that it was the other case, the problem with my life is not my in-laws who are crazy demanding during the holiday. It's not my job or that I don't have a job. It's not if only I could have a different house or a different set of friends or whatever it might be. What I need most is not a change in circumstances. And if you look at the text, the first thing Joseph learns is that God is coming in Jesus to save us from our sins not our circumstances. You see that? Verse 21, the angel tells him to name the child Mary, the name the child in Mary's womb, Jesus, because, for, because he will save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which literally means God saves. And so it's important, it's significant that the angel adds the theological explanation That through Jesus, God is coming to save his people from their real threat, which is not their circumstances. He's going to save his people from their sins. So the problem in my life is not circumstantial. It is, instead, my constant foolish insistence on doing things my own way, in my own strength, for my own glory. And sin in the Bible is a lot more than a list of immoral behaviors. It is a heart condition that pervades all of life. This besetting self-centeredness that destroys relationships, destroys everything. Sin is what is destroying my life. Sin is the real threat. It will ruin everything. And that's what God has come to save us from in Jesus. I have an illustration of this. My, back to uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, my favorite movie of all that have been made so far is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And I, because I think it's just a great picture of exactly what I'm talking about. And it's just really, I think that the people in Hollywood who did it did a great job of getting at what I think Lewis was trying to, the lesson he was trying to teach in the book. And I think the lesson is just this, that the real danger in this grand adventure that the the children go off on uh, to rescue, uh, you know, whoever whoever it is they're rescuing, I can't remember at the moment, but whatever it is, this this amazing adventure they're on, the real danger is not the sea serpents they, they have to fight, nor the storms, nor the slave traders, the real danger, and they discover this as they go along, is self-absorption and petty self-regard. 
The real journey is the journey of the interior life, about becoming people who can go, get beyond ourselves and stop thinking about ourselves so much and start generously living towards others and living bravely. And I thought the movie did a great job of capturing how annoying and how gross uh, selfishness is in the character of Eustace, if you're not familiar with the story. By the time the movie's over, you want to punch the kid in the face. I mean, it is almost painful to watch. It really is. He whines, he complains, his words are venomous, he's completely self-centered, and it's right there on display for everybody to see. Uh, but it isn't just Eustace, that's what's amazing. Edmund, ha- it happens in the story, Edmund, who in a moment of temptation reveals what is true of his heart, that he thinks he should be leading the voyage and not Caspian. You know, he, he should be wielding Peter's sword. He wants power. And there's even a scene where Lucy, who typically is the most spiritually sensitive of all of the characters in the Narnia books, falls prey to self-regard. She struggles with vanity. She wants to be beautiful like her sister, Susan. And there's one scene in particular that I thought was very profound. She so covets Susan's beauty that uh, she's in this castle and she's looking into this book and she becomes Susan in her dreams. And the result is that as she's dreaming, she realizes there's not three siblings. There are three siblings now and no longer four because there's no more Susan. And the point is that Lucy's, um, Lucy's jealousy and envy and covetousness of her sister's sins... And her selfishness and self-regard have literally swallowed her sister up. There's no, more Su- there's no more Susan in Lucy's thoughts, and so there's no more Susan. So the story is about overcoming our sin and selfishness that, that are so natural to us that naturally we are obsessively self-centered. <laughs> We're constantly swallowing other people up. And, becoming, and, and, and it's about becoming truly brave and noble and kind. And selfless. And so let me just offer a couple of hypotheticals to try to explain what I'm getting at. Let's say that you're in a bad marriage, but the reason the marriage is bad is because you're an impatient person. You're demanding, you're hypercritical, you're self-righteous and condescending. Uh, translation, you're mean. Okay? If you quit on the marriage and start a new relationship, but nothing's changed in you, you're still impatient, you're still mean, then eventually, what? Well that new relationship will be just as bad as the one you were in before because the problem wasn't the person you were married to, it was your impatience. And if you don't deal with your impatience, it will follow you from relationship to relationship to relationship. Now, what if you just hate your life? And I'm talking to myself here, okay? What if, what if you just there's this ground level of discontent and self-pity in your life? Your house is too small or it's in the wrong part of town and your car is old and broken down, okay? So the, but the real problem is, is you're just full of ingratitude. And so you sell your house, and you buy a nicer house in the part of town you want to live in, but you're still going to battle in gratitude, and it will ruin your enjoyment of the new house and the new car because eventually those things won't be nice enough too, and you'll have to find something nicer and so on and so on. Do you see what I'm saying? And so on and so on. It never ends. And so what I'm trying to explain is just this. What you need and what I need the most is not a change in circumstances. What we need the most is a change in the inner parts of our life. We need to be changed. And that is what this promised passage is, that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. He's come to heal us by his life, death, and resurrection, and by sending the Holy Spirit into our hearts. He's come to heal our selfishness, our impatience, our ingratitude. And the funny thing is, as much as we pray for him to change our circumstances, one of the strategies, really the only strategy sometimes he has in changing us is to refuse to change our circumstances. And so let me just say, if Jesus is not saving you from your sins, he's not saving you. If he's not slowly over time making you less selfish, less irritable, more patient, more content, no matter what your circumstances are, if he's not producing in you the fruit of the Spirit, then you're not a Christian yet. Because we're told here, he's come to save us from our sins, and that's our real need. And so the courage to suffer the world's disdain, the courage to give up control of our lives, comes from seeing how Jesus comes to save us from our sins, our real need. He comes at the point of our real need, and he meets us there, and he helps us by being our priest. And we see this in Matthew's editorial comment in verse 23, where he quotes the passage from Isaiah 7. Do you see that? 22 and 23, all this took place, we're told, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, and here's where the passage gets absolutely ridiculous. 
And so there's a second name. Mary's child, Jesus, will also be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that makes sense of what's been happening throughout this passage. We're told in verse 18 and then again in verse 20 that this child, which is in Mary's womb, is not has not been conceived by man, but is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit or from the Holy Spirit. And so I want to be very careful, especially if you're here and you're new to Christianity or you're not a Christian, this church thing is new to you. Here's, we believe this story is true. You with me? I mean, this is a miracle. I mean, through the power of the Holy Spirit, a baby was formed in the womb of a woman who had not been with a man and therefore could not have been pregnant. And yet God was born. I mean, God became human. That's what's happening here. The invisible became invisible. The untouchable became touchable. The the unlimited became limited. The, The unbreakable became fragile. Eternity entered into time. The independent became dependent. The almighty became weak. The exalted was humble. He who breathed the breath of life into the first man is now himself a man breathing his first breath. The king of kings sleeping in a feeding trough. The creator of oceans and seas and rivers afloat in the womb of his mother. The omniscient spirit who fills, whose being fills the galaxies confined to the womb of a peasant girl. Think about this. God sucking his thumb. Omniscient deity counting his toes. I mean, infinite power learning to crawl. (laughs) I'm speechless. And the classic articulation of this is this. We believe Jesus is one person in two distinct natures. In other words, Jesus is not part God and part man. So there are times when, you know, oh, he's over here healing people. He's being God. And then there are other times where he's over here and he's tired from the journey. So he's being man. No, no. We believe Jesus is holy God and holy man all the time in every instance for all eternity. And beyond that, I can't explain it to you. And so the question is, why? Why? I mean, this is completely insane. And by the way, it's completely unique among the religions of the world. So why? Why would God do this? Why why this story? Why come into the world like this? And the answer, I think, is found in the book of Hebrews. By the way, we're going to be preaching through the book of Hebrews all, all spring. And so I'm kind of already there in my brain. And I can't get away from the implications of this as it's worked out in the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, the writer follows a logic along these lines. He says, you know, in order to save us from the real threat, our sin, God had to become like us. And so here's the way Hebrews puts it. Let me just read a couple verses to you from Hebrews. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And again, therefore, he says, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. God became like you in every respect. So that, purpose clause, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So according to the writer of Hebrews, God put on flesh and blood in Jesus in order to become a high priest so that he could save us from our sins. That's the reason. That's the reason he came. But what we need to do is we need to understand what a priest is. We need to understand the function of a priest and the work of a priest and then apply it to the gospel and then we're home free, okay? So the function of a priest and the work of a priest in order to understand this a little better. And both of these, I think, are found in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, where the writer of Hebrews says this. You can read it if you want, but just listen. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer sacrifices for sins. So you see there... The first, the function of a, of a priest. A priest was a representative. A priest was a stand-in. A priest stood before God on behalf of the people. He made sacrifices on behalf of the people. He prayed on behalf of the people. He was a mediator, so to speak. He acted, Hebrews says there, on behalf of men in relation to God. In other words, 
what a, when a priest did something, it was credited to the rest of the people. But then the work of a priest, we're told there, was to make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Now take those two things in reverse order. And apply them to how Jesus is saving us from our sins. So first, Jesus did, in his coming, he did the work of a priest. In Hebrews 9, which is our call to worship, the writer of Hebrews says, and I can't get out, we've used this passage I think twice in the last six weeks, and we probably could use it once a month for the rest of our lifetime and not wrap our heads around everything that, that he's saying there in Hebrews 9. But the writer of Hebrews says this, he says that Jesus came to do the work of a priest but a greater work than any done by any priest before him because he, Jesus, did not enter into an earthly holy place in the temple. He entered into heaven itself and stood in the presence of God. And he did not come by way of the blood of calves and goats, but by means of his own blood. In other words, Jesus did not sacrifice a bull on our behalf. He sacrificed himself. He shed his own blood to purify us from our sins. But he also performed the function of a priest because he offered himself as a sacrifice in our place. As our substitute, as our stand in. And so the Bible says we were crucified with him. When Jesus died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised. When when, you know, when he came up out of the grave, we came up out of the grave with him to walk in newness of life. And then ultimately one day. To be raised finally and eternally into heaven for all time. And when he went into the very presence of God in heaven, as Hebrew says, we stood there with him just as accepted as accepted and welcomed as he was. And so apply this with me this morning. How do you apply this? I think one application would be just this. Jesus has put away your sin. Hebrews 9, 6 says, He appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin By the sacrifice of himself. He truly, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then by his death, his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf, then the truth that you can, you know, center your life on is just this. He has saved you from your sins because he's put them away. They're gone. Is that amen worthy, maybe? I mean, right? They Good. Merry Christmas, okay? We're all on the same page now. They're gone. He's put them away forever by the one offering of himself. And we're told he sat down at the right hand of God because his work is done. There's nothing left to do. Your sins are put away. But then I think a second application would be not only has he put away your sin, but he can help you in your ongoing struggle with sin. Because even though he's put away sins, the remnant of sin still remains. And we have to struggle throughout our life to overcome and to conquer. And so listen to Hebrews again. The writer of Hebrews says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. (laughs) And again, Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then the consequence, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So do you see the result of the result of seeing the real threat and seeing Jesus mean that real threat is right there in Hebrews four sixteen. It is courage, it's confidence, it's boldness. See if there are demands, if there's demands that are made upon us by this story about what it means for us to take our place, our inevitable place in the unfolding of God's purposes in Jesus and into the world, then what we need is courage, and the way you get courage is, is to see those things. Hebrews says we have a high priest, and the result of having a high priest is we come now boldly before the throne of grace. We have confidence. We have courage. Courage to lose your good name. I mean, if in Jesus Christ you stand in the very presence of God, welcomed and affirmed, who cares if people don't approve of you? God approves of you. And so take courage. But also courage to lose control of your life because, look, who are, who, into whose hands are you putting your life? You can trust him. I mean, look. Look at the lengths that he has gone to save you. Do you think he'll fail you now? So you see, courage. What we need is courage. Courage 
to lose our good name, courage to lose control of our life, courage to, to stand up and be counted among those who are walking with Messiah and carrying out his purposes in the earth. And we get that courage by seeing Jesus faithfully performing the duty of a high priest, offering his blood and his body in our place. And the good news is, is now we get to come to this table and celebrate this meal together as those who really uh, are putting our faith and trust, our whole hearts, hopes, and joy, and looking to him alone for our salvation. We come now to celebrate this meal together. Can we do that? And as we prepare to do that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come now to feast upon you and to celebrate the result of your work for us as our high priest, would you come and meet with us and would you increase our faith that we might truly find the courage that we need to live faithfully as your followers. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody hear me okay? Yeah? Uh, We have been, last week and continuing through Advent, uh, reciting together from the Westminster Confession of Faith Shorter Catechism. Uh, which is a a way to help us learn and remind ourselves and rehearse to ourselves the work of Christ on our behalf. Uh, and so, are we standing to do this? I'm sorry. Yes. So we stand together. And it will be on the screen behind me. And I'll read the question to you. And uh, if you would reply with the answer. Uh, what offices does Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ, as our Redeemer, executes the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. How does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making continual intercession for us. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, as we come to the table, if you would look in your worship folder uh, at the assurance of pardon, uh, just to reiterate what the writer of Hebrews says uh, as we come to a very real, tangible way that you can see with your eyes. Uh, taste with your mouth uh, how it is that Jesus has come to do the work of a priest. How it is He continues to make intercession for us. How, as you come to this table, you're fed uh, with His body broken and His blood shed. And how, as you're fed, uh, that equips you in yet another way uh, to be encouraged Uh, and to leave this place conquering sin and confident in His work. Uh, The writer says at the very bottom of the assurance of pardon there in verse 13, if the blood of bulls, excuse me, of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those things could sanctify for the purification of flesh, then how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so even as we come to celebrate this meal, we're not re-sacrificing Jesus up here. We're not breaking His body again. We're not uh, shedding His blood again. We're asking Him to come and feed us with what He has already done. And the writer of Hebrews says very clearly, He did it once for all. He did it once for all, and His blood continues to work, if you will, on our behalf. Uh, And so, as Drew has just said, His his work of the priest is offering Himself for us as a sacrifice, uh, as one who has been tempted as we are, as one who suffered and endured weakness and learned obedience through what He suffered. So as you come to this table... You're, you're taking in one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed, and you're asking Him to enable you to imitate Him as you leave this place 
as you go out into the world on the mission that he's called you to. Uh, And so I want to give you two warnings before you do come. uh, Because it's a serious thing in coming. It's a serious thing in celebrating. uh, And as we do it for the next few weeks, uh, we don't want to take this lightly. Uh, If your faith and your hope are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is impossible for you to come in confidence to the throne of grace. You can't come confidently because you're not sure of the work of Jesus on your behalf. And so I would encourage you to not come today uh, to stay in your seat, wrestle through what it is to have faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and return next week. Give Drew or myself a call this week. We can talk through it. But if your faith and your hope are not in Him, then I would ask you to not come forward. Secondly, it's a table of reconciliation, a table of peace that Christ has won for us by His body broken and His blood shed. And so, if there is something in your life that needs uh, needs you pursuing reconciliation, needs, needs you to pursue peace, a relationship, a situation, we would ask you to refrain from coming forward and taking. Go and take care of reconciling yourself, of pursuing peace in that situation, relationship, whatever it is. Take care of that this week and come back uh, next Sunday to take. Uh, On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread, and after He had given thanks, He broke the bread. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. After supper, in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, drink this, all of it, because this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. This is Jesus' body broken in the place of your body. Jesus' blood shed in the place of your blood. Uh, Again, I'd ask our officer, our uh, candidates for deacon and our installed and ordained elders to come forward if you're here uh, so that we can have you serve. Uh, And logistically, just to remind everyone, if you are here and uh, you never celebrated communion with us, uh, you will more. Uh, you'll come into the middle here, and then uh, you'll go uh, come up the middle, take from one of these stations uh, the bread, a little piece of bread, and one of the cups, return on the outside, uh, wait until everybody has received, and then we'll all take together. Okay? Makes sense? Uh, let me pray, and then you come. Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Come and feed us. Come and be present with us. Come and allow us to sense, to feel, to taste and see your goodness in your offering of yourself, in your body broken and your blood shed. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come. Child that you've delivered will soon.
Uh, taking the bread together. This is the body of Christ, broken for you. Take and eat. Uh, taking the cup. This is the blood of Christ, shed for you. Take and drink. Let me pray. Father, uh, once again we are in awe We are flabbergasted to what has been done for us, to the miracle of God becoming man, uh, to the miracle of the one who spoke the universe into existence, uh, putting himself willingly uh, into the arms of uh, broken men and women. Uh, We pray that you would, in feeding us with the spiritual food of your blessed, precious body and blood, affect change in our lives, uh, use it as spiritual nourishment for us in the mission that you've called us to. And may you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is the first Sunday of the month, and so we are going to be taking a mercy offering. Uh, And so I think Barry, have you already split those up? So the, the, uh, the guys are going to be coming around with the While they do that, I want to uh, tell you about a, a really cool thing that's happened to us. Um, we have been the recipient uh, of a, a very generous gift. Uh, some of you may have read in the newspaper uh, this past week about us and a number of other churches that received uh, a... Uh, well, the only, the only description I can use is a trevor, treasure trove of toys uh, for Christmas giving from um, a, local, uh, a local business and uh, the family that, that owns that business. Um, we were really humbled uh, by the opportunity that we have to steward these gifts uh, to those who, who might need them uh, as, they, as they look at Christmas. Uh, and so... If you personally are related to somebody that you know uh, could benefit, uh, you know may, may have a, a really difficult time providing uh, gifts for their children this Christmas, uh, come talk to us. Uh, the other exciting opportunity that we're going to explore is just across the way here, uh, most of you know there's an elementary school, Elbert Elementary. And uh, one of the things we've always wanted to try and do is figure out a way to come alongside of that school, partner with them. Uh, as, as a church who's sitting directly across the way from them. Uh, and so I've been in contact with the principal, Bill Dawson, and, and we're, we're going to talk uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact, about a way that uh, maybe we could adopt some of their families uh, in the school uh, and, and help provide gifts uh, because of the generosity that we have received, uh, provide gifts for those who might need them. Um, the 
the uh, supply is in an undisclosed location uh, around here, and it's that for very obvious reasons, because the children are running up and down here, and if we were to make that known, it would be, well, it just would be chaos. Um, so if, if you're at all interested, hey, you know, I'd just love to see what they brought. Uh, come talk to one of us. But it really is incredible, and it's an incredible opportunity, once again, for us to manage and steward the, th- the gifts that God has given to us. So it's a high calling, one we want to take seriously, uh, but one we want to be generous with what God has been so generous to us with. Uh, so pray for us in that, and again, if you know of anyone personally uh, related to you, uh, or what have you, come, come, come speak to us. So uh, with that, I think Terry's going to lead us. Let's stand together as we sing. Amen. We are powerless against our greatest need. Uh, sin has overrun us, and um, we, we do not stand a chance uh, of ever conquering it in our own strength. So praise be to God that in his wisdom and the fullness of time, he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, uh, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so now the Father uh, in heaven, because we have an advocate at his right hand who intercedes for us continually, raises his hands to bless us and to send us out uh, in the full measure of his blessings to receive the benediction then this morning. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. Um, and Oh, I messed up. That's the first time I've done that in a long time. Let's do it again. Here we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.